I don't like God very much in this Torah portion. Shabbat Shalom, I'm a rabbi, and I will admit it, I don't like the God in the portion of Bo. I'm not so sure how positive I'm feeling about last week's God either, and well, you know, there's time to make it up by next week, I suppose. Before you disbar me from the rabbinate for blasphemy, though allow me to remind you that God wrestling is very Jewish, let me explain. This week's portion picks up where last week's left off. In order to free the Israelite people, to fulfill the promise made to their ancestors and liberate them from the cruelty of Egyptian slavery, God sends plagues. The first seven arrived in rapid succession in last week's portion, and this week we read of the final three. These are the ones that show God is not messing around. You thought hail was bad? Try locusts that eat everything in sight, leaving you without food. Try a darkness so thick it can be touched. Try death on a magnitude so vast it is unthinkable. The existence of these plagues alone would be plenty to grapple with. But the way they come to being within the narrative we read adds a whole new dimension of difficulty. We know, of course, that Pharaoh and the Egyptians have done great evil, an edict to kill all baby Israelite boys, suffering and hardship and unjust enslavement. Redemption from such evil we grant will not look small. But we learn in this portion, as we saw last week, that God's intent in bringing forth these plagues is not exactly singular. If God wanted only to free the Israelites, we would have been good to go, I would bet, after the first few plagues. But time and again, not Pharaoh always, but sometimes God hardens or strengthens Pharaoh's heart, changes Pharaoh's resolve from setting the Israelites free to keeping them enslaved. And for what? The text tells us, in order that I might display these my signs among them, God says, and that you may recount in the hearing of your children and your children's children how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I displayed my signs among them in order that you may know that I am the eternal. Is this really the God we want to recount to our children, the one we want to worship? A God who will kill the firstborn of an entire people, from the nobles down to the servants, who will create a cry that has never before been heard and never will be again, all for the purpose of mockery, of showing off? No, I don't like this God very much at all. The thing that saves me from this story 
is that I don't believe that the God described here in Exodus, indeed the God described throughout the Torah, is the be-all and end-all of who God is in our lives. This God is a character, a sliver of who the fullness of the divine might be. That eases my mind, at least a little bit. And even more so, this character in whose image we are made is meant to give us a window into the complexities of our own characters as human beings. We may not have the power to bring forth swarms of insects or hold sway over life and death, but we have power enough and motivations as complex as God's are in Exodus. God is a savior and a little vindictive, a redeemer and self-absorbed, a seeker of justice who hears and responds to one people's cries and in turn causes another's. God and we are complicated. We find ourselves as a society in a place where we are all wrestling with the questions that I wrestle with in this portion. How do we reconcile ourselves to different truths about complex people? How do I continue to love a God of freedom and justice while also holding a God who can be vindictive in justice's pursuit? I've watched these questions surface in many a social discussion around culture and its icons. Can I still enjoy E.E. E. Cummings' poems, knowing he was a touch anti-Semitic? Can I still find Hemingway brilliant, given his misogynistic tendencies? Can we both mourn the loss of a legend of basketball, a man who showed the ability to grow and mature, a father and a philanthropist, while still acknowledging our uncertainties about how to be aware of his alleged act of sexual assault? Can we applaud Princess Meghan Markle's desire to create a healthy distance from the British royal family while still maybe enjoying from time to time the fancy hats? <laughs> we begin to see that we cannot benefit from culture, beauty, human prowess and development without the messy sides of human nature that come with it. These questions apply to our culture, but they apply just as easily to our everyday lives and relationships. People are complex, and that makes interacting with them complex. Sometimes holding all that complexity can be hard. Wouldn't it be easier if the person who drives you crazy at school or at work was sitting in the corner twirling their villainous mustache, all bad to the core? Wouldn't it be nice if the people we love the most always make us feel good and never make us feel angry or betrayed? We could draw neat lines, write off the villains, and draw close to the heroes, and live simple and uncomplicated lives. 
But that's not how life works, is it? Human beings, like God in this story, are many things at once, and their intentions can be both good and bad, and their actions have consequences, both moral and not. It makes life more difficult, but I'd say it also makes it worth living. Acknowledging such truths can make us more forgiving of others and more forgiving of ourselves. And it can help us forgive God in this story, though in this moment, God's character might seem a little unlikable. There's one scene in this week's portion that provides me some comfort and a way forward through this complexity. As the narration recounts the final plague and the Israelites' journey to freedom, the text introduces an idea that appears in no other place in the Bible. That was, the text tells us, for the Eternal One, a night of vigil to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And then we're told that that night, the night of Passover, will be God's night of vigil for all time. The English translation gives us the word vigil, but the Hebrew is far more nuanced. Leil shimurim, a night of shimurim. The root here, shin, mem, resh, evokes protection. Protection certainly for the Israelites as they march finally to freedom. But it also evokes, for me, the idea of shmirah, the act of guarding that we Jews typically do for the dead. And it helps me imagine God on that night somehow doing both, protecting the living who must be redeemed and sitting by the firstborns, the dead, keenly aware in the still of the night of the simultaneous cries of horror and joy caused by God's own messy complexity. And every year, on that same night, God sits, holding the good and the bad, keeping watch over God's soul and our own, trying to edge the needle ever so slightly more towards goodness, justice, and mercy less selfishness, vindictiveness, and pain, knowing that such categories can rarely be so neatly separated. As God sat on that terrible and wondrous night, so might we sit tonight and every night, witnesses to the complexities of this world, gently interrogating our own goodness and our own failings, and guardians of a truth which needs telling. No action, not even God's, bears simple consequences. No one, not even God, is all good or all bad. Life is meant to be messy and joyful and painful, and nuanced, and free.